Welcome to Mutterings from a Bald Guy podcast. My name is Chet, your host. You will find sermons and teachings that put Scripture in its rightful place of authority on this podcast. If you like this episode or any, could you tap five stars and leave me a review? When you tap those stars and leave a review, that significantly helps me spread more salt in a morally decaying world. Hey, let's bring life to the dead together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we love you and we adore you. God, here we are this morning. Hands open wide, minds open wide, and hearts open wide. Father, I ask you that you would transform us this morning with your word. God, that this would not just be another Sunday, but God, this would be a defining day in our life. Father, that if there's someone here today, Father, that has not made a decision to believe and submit to the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord, as your scripture says, as we'll see this morning, Father, I pray that they would make that decision to believe. Father, I pray as we go forward that we would open up ourselves to your teaching and your word, God, place you on your rightful throne as king, as redeemer, as savior. And God, we give you the glory that you deserve. You deserve nothing else but all of our praise and admiration because you are God. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. So John chapter 20, verse 31 is the theme. That's right. Which is, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the purpose of John writing this is so that you can believe, and by believing you have life in his name. That's the promise attached to belief. So think about the time in your life when you made the decision to believe in Jesus, to believe in the light, right? Because we see he is the light of the world. So think about that moment. That moment should have brought real life change. It should have brought about a real life change, a transformation. We see in 2 Corinthians 5, chapter seven, uh, verse 17, that there's a new creation that enters us. The old has passed and the new has come. More specifically, you started to walk in the light instead of the dark. John chapter 13, verses 21 through 30. When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was he was talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? Verse 26, Jesus replied, he's the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. When he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. None of those reclining at the table knew why he said this to him. Since Judas kept the money bag, some thought that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival or that we should give something to the poor. After receiving the piece of bread, he immediately left and it was night. Now, what we see here is that Jesus was deeply troubled, okay? It's Greek for uh, terasso, okay? It basically means he was deeply stirred with great distress. Now, imagine for a moment, I know none of us can 
do this because he's the Lord and we're human, right? Although he was man and God. But imagine with me for a minute, he's walking the earth, he's performing signs and wonders, he's making the heavenly kingdom apparent to those on earth, and he finds himself at the moment he's been waiting for, to die, to die for all of the sin of humanity. Now, just imagine for a moment, the prophecy of the Gentiles coming to Jerusalem was fulfilled. Other prophecies about him have been fulfilled. Jesus is seeing these things come to pass. He knew they would come to pass because he's God. He's all-knowing. And of course, the day came where one of his own would betray him. So he was deeply stirred with great distress. John chapter 11, there's a couple other instances in the scripture where we see this word terrasso. John chapter 11, verse 33, when Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Some of you may remember that passage. John chapter 12, verse 27, now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour, but that is why I came to this hour. And then we are brought back to verse 21 where we just, where we landing today in the passage of chapter 13. When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit. Now, the notion of betrayal to the disciples probably seemed a little odd. The disciples at this point have seen Jesus calm storms, raise the dead, heal the sick. So to them, you can imagine in their finite minds, they're probably thinking, well, Lord, if you're betrayed, that's no big deal. You got this. After all, you are Jesus. You are Messiah. You are Lord. So what could possibly come about that Jesus could not rectify? Now the betrayer we know is Judas and simultaneously he knows he's about to be exposed so he has a choice to make. Either he rushes forward and fills that evil plot or he repents and asks for forgiveness and renounces evil. But of course we know he doesn't do that. John chapter 13 verse 23 One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus. Now, I used to think when I first started reading John, I used to think, man, John's kind of arrogant. Why would he call himself the beloved disciple, right? What, what, What is so special about John? I'm the beloved disciple. You know, like I'm the best one out there, right? Well, actually, when you get down... To the original language, it's, it's a meaning of endearment. It's a, a, a dearment. It's an, a meaning of indebtedness to grace. So what John's saying is he's declaring how undeserving he is to be loved by Jesus. He feels undeserved, unworthy to be loved by him. And that's why he calls himself the beloved disciple. But we know this. John has the office of apostleship, right? But he's also just the voice. What's more important is the message. And who he's speaking about. John serves as a model for us, by the way. Becoming a Christian means a transforming relationship with Jesus Christ such that he receives the glory. In other words, our lives walking with the light should be one that gives him glory. In all of our affairs, in our family affairs, in our work affairs, in our friendship affairs, In our church affairs, Jesus should receive the glory. And when he doesn't receive the glory, we say, please forgive me, right? Because we all mess up. Y'all don't look at me super spiritual. I know you're just like me. We all mess up. 
Now, it was customary to sit at most meals, and what we see here is they were, were reclining at a table. This is during Hellenistic culture. Hellenistic is just a word that describes the culture, time, and place that the disciples and Jesus found themselves in this moment. John chapter 13, verse 24 through 25. Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was he was talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? Peter asked John to find out what Jesus was talking about. Isn't that interesting? Good old tenacious Peter. You know, Peter didn't ask him himself. He's like, hey, John. Hey, man, can you figure out what he's talking about? I really want to know. See, the easiest way for John to address Jesus was to lay his head on Jesus' chest. Many of your translations may say, bosom, bosom. I can never say that word. You guys should know by now I have quite a stuttering impediment. But his chest, right? He, John laid himself down on his chest. Now, some of you may be a little uncomfortable with this physical proximity of two men. But what I want to show you today is that in some cultures across the world, Philippines and the Arab world, men walk holding hands in public. This is a sign of friendship, not homosexuality. Men and women in such cultures may not hold hands in public because it shows unbridled lust. Now, we know that's not that way in America, and I'll tell you it's not that way in Brazil for sure because I went there three times, and in your public parks, they just soon not even be in a hotel room. Go ahead. I mean, you know, it's just the culture there, you know, they kiss each other. They do more than that in public. It, it's just the culture that they're in, right? So now that we have a better grasp on the context, because I wanted to, I wanted to say that because there are some heresies out there that say, uh, number one, John was a feminine man. He was one that was more like a woman, right? And then you see some paintings that it was a woman laying upon Jesus' chest. That's not true. That's not scriptural. It was the culture that they found themselves in. And by the way, what better man to lay your head on other than Jesus? Amen. John chapter 13, verse 27. After Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you're doing, do quickly. Now, Jesus giving Judas this morsel of bread is significant. Jesus knew that this was the man to betray him. Jesus has spent time with him, has loved him, has taught him, has fed him, has protected him. And yet, Jesus knew that this was going to be the one to turn him over to the authorities. What we know from this context is that only the host would give his honored guest this type of gesture. So you mean to tell me, Jesus, you know that this man is going to betray you, but yet you honor him? with such a kind and privileged gesture. Well, yes, Jesus did. See, Jesus is showing his betrayer gentleness and love. It's a final gesture by the King of Kings. Ron McManus said, bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Judas received the sop and morsel, but not the love. How many people can we think of that receives the good material blessings of God, but does not receive God himself. It's a sad state that we see. It's a sad state that we find ourselves in to see such hardened resolve. 
See, instead of breaking him to repentance, Jesus' act of love hardened his resolve. And this is the point that Satan entered him or possessed him. Now, it was August 2005. How many of you guys remember Katrina? Everybody, right? Because it was all over the news media. We became famous in South Louisiana. The one time, you know, everybody knew about South Louisiana. In August 2005, we made the decision to evacuate because Tropical Storm Katrina was gaining strength by the hour. I can vividly remember it not being a big deal because growing up in South Louisiana, that's just what you do. You evacuate. Like, you know when June, July, August, September come, there might be a chance for a couple of vacations, okay? This is what you do. You evacuate. So I didn't think anything of it. Katrina seemed like she was going to be just another storm like the rest. You evacuate for a couple of days, go eat out all the time, have a good time, you know, go to a theme park, and then come home. But what made Katrina so special was her ability to break the charts once she entered the Gulf of Mexico. She had sustained winds at 175. Think about that. That's strong enough to lift your house off its foundation and gently lay it down about 200 yards away, okay? We evacuated to Tyler, Texas. This is when things changed for me as a young man. I remember like it was yesterday watching the news in the hotel room and CNN came on and all you saw was the devastation in New Orleans. And for all we knew, that's what it was like in my hometown because we were only 45 minutes away from New Orleans. So we really didn't know what our house looked like, what was going on. So there was obviously uh, a sense of desperation, a sense of anxiety, a sense of worry. And then we found out 80% of New Orleans was underwater, including NOBTS, which is my current seminary. I can remember stories of people stuck in attics, not, not able to get through their roof and drowning or suffocating. I can remember hearing stories of my friends who were part of the Cajun Navy, which is, uh, you guys would understand this because many of you in this church would do this because we're the same kind of people, just live in different parts of the, world, the uh, nation. But the Cajun Navy is just a bunch of good old boys that jump in their boat and go rescue people. Y'all know y'all do the same thing if it came down to it, right? <laughs> So you had the Cajun Navy, just some local men that drove their boats out and launched it and tried to go rescue people, and they got shot at. They were getting shot at. Which is, you, you've probably heard some of these things. I mean, if, if you thought the anarchy on the streets following George Floyd's murder was bad, you should have seen New Orleans in the weeks to follow. Police and National Guard had to do unspeakable things to protect themselves and people in the community in the weeks to follow. Listen to the story by Michael P. Walther. On August 30th, 2005, Coast Guard Lieutenant Lane McConnell was ordered to fly his H-46 helicopter to New Orleans and to keep that machine flying around the clock for what would turn out to be a heroic rescue effort. None of his crew were prepared for what they were about to see. They were ahead of every news crew in the nation. The entire city of New Orleans was underwater. On their first three missions that day, they saved 89 people, three dogs, and two cats. On the fourth mission, despite 12 different flights to New Orleans, he and his crew were able to save no one. None. They all refused to board the helicopter. Instead, they told the Coast Guard to bring them food and water. Yet they were warned that it's extremely dangerous because the water was not going to go away anytime soon. Sadly, many of those people perished because of their refusal to be rescued. See, this true story of Judas is no different. Jesus knew Judas was deciding to betray him, and he still treated him with gentleness and love. 
But just like those people in New Orleans that rejected to be re- that rejected rescue, Judas in that last moment rejected the opportunity to seek forgiveness. But what do we know? Darkness never beats light. This battle of dark and light is a present apparent reality. John 13:30. After receiving the piece of bread, he immediately left and it was night. You see that wordplay there that John put, and it was night. You guys have seen over and over and over again this contrast between light and dark. John is a brilliant author. He continues to bring out his theme through the book. See, as sold out to Satan as Judas was, he had no choice but to obey Jesus. Listen to this. Even in the small detail, Jesus makes it clear that no one takes his life from him. He voluntarily lays it down. Even in this moment where his, one of his best comrades is about to betray him, Jesus is in still, he's still in control of his destiny. He's still in control of when and how he is going to die. When and how the Father's plan will come to be. Friends, I want you to know something this morning. That God is active in your life. He is concerned about every detail in your life. He loves you desperately. He wants you to love him more the closer you draw to him. John 10, 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own, Jesus says. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my father. Judas was swallowed up by the most awful darkness, indeed by outer darkness. Look at Matthew chapter 8, verse, 13, verse 12. Let's talk about this darkness that we see. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 22, 13. Then the king told the attendants, tie him up hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, 30. And throw this good for nothing servant into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This weeping and gnashing of teeth phrase that you're seeing literally means to weep by the shivering, gobbling, grinding of teeth. Picture that for a moment. That sounds absolutely horrendous. Amen? I mean, gobbling, grinding teeth. Like it just gives me the, we call it the frisons where I'm from, the goosebumps, right? Because some of us really don't like the dentist, but I, you know, I don't like the dentist. I, I can take it or leave it. But when I go to the dentist, I don't want my teeth gnashing or grinding, right? I mean, that's just nasty. That, 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 makes me, that makes me cringe. But this was the picture of darkness that Jesus is making us realize. The weeping and gnashing of teeth. Luke twenty two fifty three. 53. Every day while I was with you in the temple, you never laid a hand on me. But this is your hour and the dominion of darkness. So we see the power of darkness has come only to fulfill God's plan of light. Amen? God has a plan and a purpose. A family had gone to the movies, and you know, like any family would do, they send their older teen to go get the Coke and Sprite, whatever you desire, and popcorn. And so the teen goes into the theater, and he's never been there. He doesn't know where his family is. So he's walking up and down the aisle. The lights are growing dim. And you know how it is in a theater. 
it's so dark. I mean, you can't even see your hand, right? And so he's walking up and down the aisle, and he's, he, he's kind of getting frantic at this point because people are kind of starting to stare at him. You know, he's making a scene. And then finally he says, hey, does anybody recognize me? <laughs> Isn't that the truth about darkness? Number one, you can't see where you're going. And number two, no one can recognize you. When I see old friends in my hometown, most of them say, man, I didn't recognize you. And I'm thinking, that's a compliment. <laughs> that is a compliment. They don't recognize me because I no longer walk in the darkness. Whenever light penetrates our souls, we believe in Jesus. There's a change that occurs. We no longer walk in the dark. We walk in the light. We need to remember that this morning. John 9, 4. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. John 8, 12. Jesus spoke to them. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12, 46. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. So you may be wondering why we talk about light and dark so much in John. Why do we keep talking about it? I read a dream by this pastor. Now, granted, this is a dream, okay? This is not a prophecy or a real occurrence. This is a dream by Pastor Wade Martin, okay? Several years ago, I had a nightmare. It was terrible, said Wade. In a dream, I saw one of the most serious workers at church dying a terrible death. As my church worker was dying, I saw a battle going against my member. I was broken beyond belief. As I saw this dedicated Christian worker die, and the devil was grabbing the individual and taking the soul to hell. The smell was terrible. I could smell the enemy in hell. This was so real. In the dream, I started screaming. No way, enemy. You can't have this worker. I have counted on them to do many things to build this church. They have touched many people and led many people to the Lord. I'm a better pastor because of this individual, and the church is a better church. After all the hours and efforts this family has invested in the church, the enemy was slowly dragging my church member toward the lake of fire in great torment. We could hear the horrible sounds coming out of hell. The smell was so real and horrible, I shall never forget. I was thinking, maybe there was a secret sin, and they were playing Christian games. This was not the problem. I tried to fight for my dear friend, and the enemy kept slowly pulling my member towards hell. The fight was very painful. I said, this is a good person. This family paid their tithes. They were faithful to church. I could count on them. What is going on here? Jesus, help me. What is going on here? With tears in his eyes, Jesus came to me and said, I have tried and I've tried to change the events of this day. I've personally sent messages through you to warn this individual. I have sent radio messages to expose the sin. I've given the words to television preachers and they watched with zeal, but my words were unhe unheeded. This person has cassette tapes that has warned them, but they have not heard the message I've spoken to them. This person has books on their shelf. They have read the parts they like, but the message I warned them was unheeded. As a matter of record, when they heard the message, they said the message was for someone else. They even said, amen, let it be, but they thought the message was for the other party. I again questioned, why, Jesus? What is wrong? I knew them. They were good people. 
This individual was angry and full of wrath. Despite that, they did not have belief in me. Bitterness was rampant daily, and unforgiveness had helped to bring an early death. The home was full of coldness and painful rejection. This person had a loud, critical spirit to tear down the confidence in everyone. They refused me. The anger they carried had brought physical affliction, yet this never got their attention to correct. The person had rejected me and forgiveness. I was absolutely broken. As I saw one of my best friends escorted into hell, I could do nothing to change the hard heart, the hurt, the bitterness. The bait had been accepted. The trap had locked on the neck. I understood disbelief as I never did before. This is a serious consequence of living in the dark. Now, I know there would be, it would be reasonable to say, well, how could that pastor's dream be true? Guys, it was a dream, okay? But this is the point. And this is a very serious point that I want you to hear this morning. We have been breaking down the word believe because I see, I believe this is where a lot of people in Christendom kind of differ. The definition in the Greek for pisteo is very clear. It is a genuine, authentic belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing you can do to attain this belief. It's something that you believe in, okay? And with that comes a surrender of oneself. With belief comes a denial to self. With belief comes a surrender to submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very important that we understand that. Now, listen, you can attend church your whole life and go to hell. You can do all the best works in the world and go to hell. You can give all the money you have to the church and go to hell. You can even work tirelessly to obey the Ten Commandments and do an all right job and still go to hell. Here's the truth in the light. Light permeates the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Who is the light? Jesus. Who do we need to believe? Jesus. So if we believe Jesus, then we need to do what the scripture says. We need to follow Jesus. Now, I understand this word called sanctification looks different from one person to the other. Some people are early on in their walk. Some people it takes a little longer to understand the precepts of scripture. Some people that you see just a radical immediate change and, and things start happening. Some people it takes a little longer over time. These, this is different from person to person. But the point is, you should still have the light. When the light comes inside of you, hey, listen. When the light comes inside of you, you can't help but be the light. There's no more darkness. Light always permeates the dark. Jesus always permeates the evil. Now, does that mean, oh, preacher, you're saying I'm going to be perfect? No, I'm not saying you're going to be perfect. Lord knows I'm not perfect, okay? What I'm saying is, when you submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of Christ comes inside of you, and darkness cannot come overcome it. You are made into a new creation. Look at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, in the he was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Friend, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus this morning? 
I want to ask you a series of questions just to spur thought this morning, because this is something we need to ask ourselves. What does your life look like behind closed doors? What do you search on your phone when no one is looking? How do you treat your spouse and kids when no one is looking? See, Jesus, right now in his word, is telling you to come to him. Look, Luke 24, 46 through 48. He also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. What do we see in verse 47? We see repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed. So what does that mean? We look to the Lord Jesus. We see his work on the cross. And in the moment of belief, what happens? We repent. We turn away from our old life and we turn towards Jesus Christ. Yes, the work has been done. It's been completed. And we repent. We have to come to a place of repentance. Repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed. Listen, repentance is something that we like to take kind of, ah, you know, I can take it or leave it, right? Repentance is not turning a 45-degree angle and just kind of walking the other way. Repentance is saying, no, I'm done with that old life, and I am ready. I am here. I believe. I believe. I believe. I believe. Does that mean God's going to make your whole life just great and rosy? No. But what it does mean is that now you walk in the light. And with the light carries blessings and promises that go beyond here. In order to walk in the light of Jesus, you have to repent of the darkness in your life to be filled with the light. Believe. Believe. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. God, I thank you that you are the light. And Father, I pray right now that If there's anyone here today that is experiencing life in the darkness, Father, that they would not be afraid to believe in you. Father, I know it's custom to call people forward. But Father, we also understand that you are bigger than a public walking forward invitation. That God, you are present with every person in this room, in this room. That if they would look to you, you, the Lord Jesus, right now and believe, Father, that your promise will hold true and that light will permeate the darkness. But Father, I ask that if anyone does make that decision, that they would make it known. Because Father, when you live inside of us, when the light lives inside of us, we can't help but penetrate the dark and want people to know about it. Father, we love you, we adore you, and the invitation is clear, Father. It's to respond to your word this morning, to make Jesus the light of our lives. Amen. Many of you have little kids. If if you need to leave, please feel free to do now. What I'm going to do for the next 10 minutes, and it's going to be short, is just address you guys on critical race theory, what it means, why it's important for you to understand it. And what's the process of, obviously, we see our nation going in um, with critical race theory. So one of the first things I want to say is that I am grateful that we live in a nation where we still have a voice. And so we need to acknowledge that first and foremost, because there are many of our brothers and sisters across the world that cannot speak 
against anything other than what is allowed, okay? So we need to acknowledge that, a great nation we live in. So critical race theory. It's best described by these three principles that I'm going to speak about this morning. And these three principles and most of the content that I'm going to speak to you about came from Dr. Vadi Bakum, who's really been a, a Christian voice um, for the last couple of, longer than two years now. Um, but he's really been getting a lot of airtime and um, a lot of churches have been inviting him to speak. He wrote a book just recently um, called Fault Lines that I would highly recommend you get. The first point about critical race theory is that racism is normal. This is not my words. This is critical race theory. Racism is normal. In other words, everything is racist. Everything. Down to the very fabric of her being, everything is racist. Robin D'Angelo wrote a book titled White Fragility, a book that I read. I read this book because, well, let's just put it this way. Thousands upon thousands of citations have been made from her book in peer, peer review journals. Now, many of you acad- academias in here know that if you get cited on a peer review journal, you're doing very well, okay? This book has been sold millions and millions of times. It's being taught in major universities. It's being taught in workplaces. All the principles from this book, all right? Now, Basically, what we learn from the book is this. Don't ask whether racism occurred, but rather how it manifests itself here in America. How many of you guys heard about the 1619 Project? A few of us. So we know that America was founded and declared a nation in what year? 1776. So the 1619 Project wants to define America by the year 1619, not 1776. The year 1619 is the first year that African slaves were brought to America. So bring some context. So critical race theory wants to define America by 1619 and not 1796. The second principle, convergence theory. Richard Delgado wrote a book titled Critical Race Theory, and these are two quotes from his book. Large segments of society have little incentive to eradicate racism. Unquote. Quote. Whites are incapable of righteous acts on race. Let me repeat that. Whites are incapable of righteous acts on race. This is a leading voice in the critical race movement. Okay? He says only when it benefits a white person do they not act racist. Basically, white people are incurably racist. Incurably racist. Whites are in essence condemned by their melanin count. Condemned by their melanin count. Again, these are not my words. These are the words of the leading founders and authors of critical race theory. We'll get to how that contrasts the gospel in a minute. Number three, anti-liberalism and not the liberalism you're thinking of. Critical race theory questions legal reasoning, equality theory, and the enlightenment rationalism. You guys have heard of the Enlightenment period, where scientific method came, we started learning more about factual reasoning, we started learning a little bit how to think um, with logic and whatnot. A lot of our early church uh, fathers, uh, I say fathers, but early um, apologetic um, teachers in the Christian faith come from the Enlightenment period, where they provide us a lot of 
sound reasoning for Christianity, okay? It's not a bad thing. But CRT questions all these things. In other words, common sense is no longer the way to factual data. Listen, knowledge is socially constructed. There's no such thing as objective truth. Let me say that again. This is CRT. This is what they believe. Knowledge is socially constructed. There's no such thing as objective truth. Let me explain that. This is objective. This is a truth outside of ourselves. Subjective truth is truth within that's subject to change. This is objective truth. It's not going to change. It's outside of ourselves, okay? CRT wants to destroy the family unit. You and I both know that the family unit within a society is the DNA. That is how a society is formed. That's how a society holds together. By the way, that's how our churches hold together, is the family unit. It's by God's design. This is Marxist at its core. If you want to know more about Marxism, we can talk about that another time. I just want to throw that out there. It's, the principles are very Marxist. If you want to break down and deconstruct culture, break down the family unit, which is what they're trying to do. This way, children are not raised in traditions that are passed down so effectively. <laughs> we have some good traditions. You don't hear um, much about reconciliation. You don't hear much about Bible studies on racism. You, you don't hear these things because they don't see that as a solution. They see it as a problem. As a matter of fact, I've actually heard someone tell me that that's white privilege to have a Bible study on reconciliation about racism. Now, what world that comes from is the world we're living in. Not the world view we have, but the world view that the world has. The only way to truth is through conversations. This is why. The experience of the marginalized is now the gospel. The experience of the marginalized is now more powerful than anything you have to say or I have to say. That's, in essence, critical race theory. This is the summary of Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility. And this is about all white people. You can't win, you can't get even, and you can't get out of the game. There's no solution. It's all oppressor, oppressee. And we are the oppressors. And there's absolutely nothing we can do about that. Now, this is our response. Your children are being or will be eventually, thank God for our school board here, by the way, and I'll get to that in a minute, are being influenced by school, social media, and friends. And I want to acknowledge our school board superintendent, Paul Nichols. I actually was uh, speaking with him yesterday through iMessenger. We contacted back and forth, and I just wanted him to know that I'm grateful for him and that I was praying for him that day, and I appreciate what he's doing um, being a man of integrity in his faith right now, especially in, because, I mean, you got to imagine the pressure that he's feeling from both sides, okay? Um, and many of you leaders in here understand that pressure of, of what's going on in, the, in this time. And so you, I would encourage you to do the same, uh, to message him or get with him, send him a letter, let him know you're praying for him and that you, you support him as he tries to fight this fight. If you don't think this is a big deal, I beg you to see otherwise. Listen, if CRT takes a hold of you, and by the way, they're use, using different language now. It's not CRT. It's, uh, it's other things that people are saying to place, but the principles are the same. 
If CRT takes a hold of you or your child's mind, you will not see Jesus for who he is in the scripture. This is the key. You will see yourself as an unchangeable, socially constructed being that God has no power over. Let me read that again. You will see yourself as an unchangeable, socially constructed being that God has no power over. That's dangerous, friends. That is vitally dangerous to the precepts and the foundations that we teach our children in the scripture. It is dangerous. CRT wants to define the nation and the people in it by their past. You ever notice that? It's all about the past. The gospel defines people by who they are in Christ. We cannot lose sight of that. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see, the new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Listen, this is what I beg you today. Respond to this the right way. The right way. Do not respond with anger and hostility, but with love and compassion. This is why I say this. The early church, the first three centuries, you know what they were marked by? Suffering. Unspeakable suffering. And do you know that pagan kings and pagan leaders acknowledged that Yahweh, their God, was a little bit more powerful than their own gods? Because they suffered and died well. So this is what I'm asking you. I know we're in a period of suffering, so to speak. We saw, boy, do we live in a great nation. But we are going through a period in a season right now where we are being tested. <laughs> we're being very tested with what we believe and how we react, amen? Because there's so many people around us that believe differently. So I encourage you and I exhort you to do it. First Peter 3, 15 through 16. Peter's writing the suffering, dying church, okay? But in your hearts, Regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ would be put to shame. We are in a battle for truth. Our truth is the truth in this text. This text is becoming to be the symbol of suffering and slaves and bigotry. But friends, I, I want to encourage you that when someone says that, you need to love them. Don't get angry. If you get angry, you are being just like them, okay? We have to respond in the correct way. By the way, let me remind you, the Holy Spirit is more powerful than CRT or our feelings towards it. Be the people of love that God calls us to be and boldly stand on the word. Guard your hearts and guard your children. Guard your children. When I was a kid, my parents taught me to work hard and live life. That was it. And those were great. It worked. Nowadays, parents have to do a lot more. Work hard and live good, but beware of this and beware of that. And watch out for this. And if a person says that, say this. If a person does that, do this. If you see that, do this, right? I mean, it's the world we live in is just, it's, it's consuming us with this. But what is that doing? That's forcing us to know what we believe. Because when we suffer, we seek truth. And that's a blessing. Show people Jesus by the way you react to these things. 
This is an, a powerful apologetic. These are just things that I wanted to leave you with, and I'll pray and we'll exit. And I'll make myself available at the end if you guys have any questions, or I'll be available during the week as well if, if you got somewhere you need to be. Pray for and support your local school board administrators and teachers by reaching out to them. Many of them are in this church that I know are fighting the good fight. Speak openly about this to your children so they know what's coming and they have a firm foundation in Christ. And lastly, if this disturbs you to no end and you are beyond worried, anxious, and scared, pray about training your children from home. That's your right. It's okay to send your children to school if that's what you and your husband or you and your wife decide, and it's okay not to if that's what both of you decide. That option is still on the table. We live in a free country right now, and you have that option to do that. I've spoken to many people who um, are, are just consumed with, with worry for their kids, and I guess sometimes we forget that that's an option that we actually, we actually uh, have authority over our kids because God has given us authority over our kids. So we can do um, what we feel we need to do, what's best for them, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truths in the text. We thank you for those in our local county, Father, uh, many in this church, God, that are on the front lines of this thing and ciphering through processes and um, hearing things from the news media and also hearing things from their leaders and hearing things from the citizens. And it's just constantly, constant pressure. Father, we, we pray for uh, Mr. Nichols, Lord, that you would bless him and that he would continue to stand firm upon his Christian faith, Lord, and do everything in his power that you've invested him with to make sure that families are cared well for in the local school system, which I know he is doing. And Father, we pray for those um, teachers and administrators in our own church, God, that you would give them the strength and the compassion and the love that they need because they encounter it every single day. And Father, they need just an extra dose of that. And I pray that you bless them and their families. Father, I pray for our, our young ones that are in the school system and through this last year have just been hearing from their friends things that their parents talk about and it's just constant confusion about who you've designed them to be. I pray that they would look to you, Lord, and believe in you. I pray that you would uh, provide them the gospel message, which, Father, I know that you provide uh, in this great nation that we have. Father, your gospel message is available, and I just pray that you would send a messenger to them, to these sweet children, Father, that they would believe in you and trust you, especially those, Lord, who don't have a good home life and have, to, have had to been through uh, COVID and now through this and the confusion that must be going through their minds as little children. Father, I just pray that you would guide them as your word says in Proverbs, trust in you, Father, um, and, and believe in you, trust in, in you, and Father, that you would make their path straight in verse six, Proverbs chapter three. Make their path straight, Father. It's in your name I pray, amen. Thank you guys for coming this morning.